WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Budget cuts are coming to Indiana. Absentee voters in the Hoosier State far exceed previous years. Plus, the IURC will investigate the COVID impact on utilities and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending May 29th, 2020. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, in response to a nearly $1 billion revenue shortfall due to the novel coronavirus, a number which is likely to grow, the state plans to cut agency budgets by 15% in the upcoming fiscal year. Office of Management and Budget Director Chris Johnston says the 15% cuts are an initial but expected step. There are going to be different steps that we take over time as we learn more about the revenue picture, uh, the extent of federal assistance, uh, as well as any flexibility to the existing assistance that we've already received. In addition to state agency cutbacks, the governor's office announced capital projects from the budget surplus, next-level trails grants, and deferred maintenance projects, including for state parks, are on hold. Indiana is getting about $2 billion in aid from the Federal CARES Act, but Johnston notes that money came with strings attached. It has to be uh, direct expenditures of public health and medical expenses. Um, it has to uh, be for expenses that weren't in your current budget, and it's only for expenses between March and December of, of this year. Johnston says some of the money will go to staffing assistance at the Department of Correction, costs at the Indiana National Guard, and eventually a program for small businesses that weren't able to access the federal Paycheck Protection Program. Should there be a more comprehensive plan already in place for that federal money? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Now, before we get to Ann and Mike to talk about this, let's start actually with Nikki Kelly, because we did hear today at the governor's press conference here on Friday some details about that small business program. Nikki, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a $30 million program, and it's aimed at small businesses with 50 or fewer employees who did not, for whatever reason, get the PPP loan from the federal government. Um, I think the maximum for a company can get is $10,000, and you have to show at least a 40% loss in revenue sort of monthly, and, and up to 80% would get you the maximum. All right. So now, Mike O'Brien, even with that announcement today, we are seeing other states using the CARES money for rent relief, farm aid, cash grants for businesses, which we are seeing a little bit here. But why haven't we seen more of a comprehensive plan yet in Indiana? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, I, I don't think it's not comprehensive. I think it's reactive um, to, to local uh, circumstances like it is in other states um, that are choosing to use these dollars for, for different reasons where they see that where they see that need. Local government is using uh, these dollars. And but the, a part of that was there's not total clarity from the federal government on how some of these dollars can be used. Can you use them for revenue replacement, for example? Can the city of Indianapolis use it for the CIB, for example? Think, you know, there's questions like that that 
um, haven't been answered yet. And so uh, to some degree, uh, you know, the, the dollars were approved and then the United States Treasury said, well, we'll get back to you on how you can use it. Um, and that's obviously become much more clear over the last uh, over the last several weeks. And I think you're going to see more um, more announcements from the administration like the one you, uh, you saw on Friday. And Delaney, it's it feels like of the things they publicly announced that they're using the money for on a state level, they're sending a lot of that money to the local to local governments. But at the state level, it feels like they're they're plugging holes where they see them so far while waiting, like Mike just said, for a little more a little clearer answers on what they can use it for in big numbers, right? Or some, some, a little bit more flexibility on the part of Mitch McConnell on what they can use it for. But the problem with this is that this entire process needs to be transparent, okay? We need to have public input. The legislature ought to be involved in how these more than $2 billion are being spent. It shouldn't be a group of guys sitting around the table who are friends of the governor deciding how that kind of federal money is spent. There are real needs out there, and if, whether it's for paying your rent or paying your utilities or feeding your family, we have so many people on unemployment that haven't gotten any unemployment benefits yet, and the $30 million or up to $10,000 is not going to help stop a lot of these small businesses from going bankrupt. So we need transparency. We need to have the public have input on this process and have confidence that the way the money is being allocated is what's best for the community. And the way the process is working now, we don't have that. John Schwannis, we've heard, I've heard from lawmakers privately who are, let's call it, a little unhappy with the sort of lack of input they feel that they've been uh, given, not just on all this federal money, but throughout this entire pandemic about the states or the decisions that the state is making. How feasible do you think it is, though, to get the legislature, the full legislature, really involved in how certainly this first round of federal money, and we keep hearing about the potential for one more um, boondoggle, if you will, uh, coming from the federal government in the next month or two. So how feasible do you think it is to get the legislature a lot more involved in this process? Well, I'm not sure it is feasible to get the entire legislature involved, as you had suggested. Uh, Some people want to see Ideally, yes, that would be preferable. We want a transparent process. We want one where all stakeholders can weigh in and certainly where all 150 members of the General Assembly can have uh, their say. However, I think logistically, to get everybody a return to the State House so that they could at least then approve rules, rule changes and measures that would enable them to then perhaps do things remotely. But I don't think they could necessarily have 150 people acting uh, remotely under current rules uh, unless they first got together to uh, to vote themselves that privilege. Now, that's sort of the, the catch-22 in which I think the, the members of the General, General Assembly find themselves, and certainly uh, the governor, it would be his prerogative to, to call them back into special. But you could at least have the caucuses represented in this process. You don't have to have all 150 to have open meetings or meetings subject to the open record, to the to the requirement of transparency. We don't even have that. All right. Well, we, we were so having a little have, trouble. We were having a little trouble it, with John Schwannis there uh, breaking up a little bit. We're all at the mercy of Internet connections uh, in this time of that we're living in. Now, nearly 550,000 Hoosiers 
requested absentee vote-by-mail ballots for the 2020 primary, a huge increase from prior years after the state expanded vote-by-mail to anyone who wanted it. But there are reports, and now a formal request from Myra Eldridge, the clerk of Marion County, for people to get their ballots uh, weeks after we've had reports, I should say, of people not getting their absentee ballots until weeks after requesting them. And that's led many to wonder if they'll have enough time to return them. Hoosiers who want to vote by mail in this year's primary election have to get their ballots to their county election office by noon on Election Day, next Tuesday, June 2nd. But the Indiana Secretary of State's office cautions that the U.S. Postal Service is overloaded during the pandemic. Still, there are options. For one, Hoosiers can bring their absentee ballots directly to their local county election office. They can also vote in person. Just take the unmarked absentee ballot to your polling place to delete it. But what if you already mailed your absentee ballot and are worried it won't get there on time? There's an option for that, too. Hoosiers can go to the polling place and vote in person while filling out a form that voids the absentee ballot if it comes in later. And if that absentee ballot was already received, the system should show that. And Delaney, I just mentioned Myra Eldridge, though if you didn't understand that I was doing that, that can be forgiven, certainly, the way I garbled it. But should we be concerned, as she is, that a bunch of absentee ballots simply aren't going to be counted? Oh, I think so. And I, I give her credit. I give Myra my credit for you know, speaking out about this, this issue. I mean, it is encouraging that that many people filed absentee ballots. I think that's great because Indiana traditionally has been in the bottom 10 of the states in terms of voter turnout and in primaries particularly. So I think that's really encouraging. And we want everybody's ballot to be counted. And there's nothing magic about June 2nd at noon. I mean, the, the state election board can change that as well as waiving the requirement for an, an absentee ballot, and they should, because they want it. I, I mean, I assume the Secretary of State and the state election board wants to have every ballot counted. And we have to make adjustments for the fact that the mail is, is slower because of the demand on the Postal Service. Mike O'Brien, Connie Lawson was posed this question today. Why don't we, we make it so that, for instance, every ballot that was postmarked by June 2nd will right. be counted? Um, she said that the June 2nd at noon deadline is about safety and security. What is unsafe or unsecure about counting every ballot that is postmarked by June 2nd? Well, first of all, I think this is a problem with the Marion County Clerk's Office. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying we've got we're not going to have problems or see see issues uh, around the state. This is a complicated, um, you know, this is a complicated time we're living in. But clearly, the Marion County Clerk dropped the ball on this. They knew six or seven oh, weeks ago yeah. they were falling behind. She didn't ask for more staff until three days before the deadline. Mayor Hogshead got, to his credit, acted really quickly uh, to to staff up that office. But uh, Myla Eldridge sat on her hands for for almost two months, and now now it's a crisis, and we've got to change the entire process for. It. And I don't think that's fair. It's not fair to the voters, Mike. That's who it's not fair to. Yeah, you're right. And she's so dealing, she's dealing with an unprecedented, unprecedented we return all, of those. Well, okay, well, so we, we make adjustments. We had, a, we, had a, we had a bipartisan, both political parties, the Indiana Democratic Party and the Indiana Republican Party, agreed to this process. We can't keep changing it because we had one elected official in the state. Sure we can. Who's now, sure we can. Who's now ringing her hands. Nikki sure Kelly, can. Nikki Kelly, let me ask you this. Well, we if, Nikki Kelly, let me ask you this. If we do see... Uh, this problem pop up, which is absentee ballots, n absentee ballots not counted because they didn't quite get in on time in places beyond Marion County. How upset are go voters going to be about this deadline and the decision by Republicans not to change it? Because let me be clear, as I mentioned in the piece, 
Mike's right that there was a bipartisan agreement about a lot of the changes, but Democrats wanted to push back the timeline and Republicans said no. Right. Yeah, they brought that I to mean, the last election commission meeting. It kind of depends on – I think the question was to me. Sorry. It kind of <laughs> depends on what the problem is. Did the clerks not get them out in time or did people not send them in time? I think – I haven't heard any of those issues in Allen County, and they had a huge number of – 40,000 people asked for them compared to 6,000 four years ago. So, and I also do think, I want to just say one thing, noon, whatever, it's kind of arbitrary, I don't get it, but there has to be a deadline at one point. I mean, if you say two days after and then a person is an hour past that, then theirs doesn't get counted. So there has to be a deadline. Sure. John Schwann is, is, is part of the problem here that some of this, not all of it, but some of it relies on the post office? I guess by definition that's part of the problem. And, and you have a postal service that has been uh, taxed by this unprecedented situation. And therefore, we're seeing, uh, in some cases, protracted delivery uh, schedules and so forth. And, and so that, yeah, that is a part of it. Uh, you know, we'll probably be making election predictions, uh, I'm guessing, at some point uh, later in the show. But I will make one uh, prediction now, and that is that we will see some sort of litigation arise uh, from the rules that are in place now and the uh, this seemingly ironclad requirement about uh, the noon deadline that we have discussed. I think uh, we'll see, uh, and it's not uncommon to see federal lawsuits filed uh, in, in the wake of elections when people are in line and, and doors are closed before they get up to the polling place. And, I mean, or because of some unusual circumstances, weather, or who knows, uh, there, there are unusual factors at play. These are unusual factors, and I wouldn't be surprised if people turn to the courts uh, to find some relief. All right. Well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, are you voting in Indiana's 2020 primary election? Yes in person, yes by mail, or C, you're not. Last week's question, will former Congressman Todd Rakita win the Republican nomination for Attorney General? 57% of you say yes, and 43% say no. I hope Curtis Hill, who's uh, on a little holiday right now, was voting in our poll. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, the state plans to look into how the pandemic has affected Indiana utilities and their customers. This comes just days after Governor Eric Holcomb extended the moratorium on utility disconnections for unpaid bills by another month. Consumer advocates worry many Indiana residents will face financial hardship even after the pandemic ends. They say the state needs a plan to protect customers from shutoffs so they can get basic services like electric, water and sewer. Meanwhile, several electric and gas utilities say they need financial relief too, which could mean higher rates in the future. Utilities have been losing money due to unpaid bills and less energy demand due to stay-at-home orders. The Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission plans to gather information from stakeholders and the public with the hopes of issuing at least a preliminary order before July 1st. Nikki Kelly, there has seemed to be a particular outcry this time over the plea, if you will, from utility companies, right? Yeah, I think something is like, you know, since the government won't let them shut people off or charge late fees, something like that I think people could sort of understand because that's a loss to the company by a governmental decision. But this idea that, you know, people or businesses used less electricity is shocking. 
Um, I think Democrats have been very vocal against this. I haven't heard much from Republicans, but I will give Speaker Houston a nod in speaking with the NFIB yesterday. He was asked about this, and he he said he was shell-shocked when he saw the the IURC request, and he basically said he hopes that the utilities think about the person they're billing because they're all struggling too. Yeah, John Swanis... um feels like there's going to be a lot more attention paid to the IURC for the next little while than there normally is, yeah? Oh, I think John's uh, feet may have frozen up a little bit. Uh, so, Mike I'll, I'll, Mike, I'll go to you with the exact same question, which is it feels like there's going to be a lot more attention paid to the IURC for the next little while, yeah? Well, I think so. I mean, there's, there's certainly... In the last session, there was... Oh, well... <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I mean, there's got to be a balance here, and there's uh, there's going to be a whether the timing of this request is is right is is certainly certainly debatable. Clearly, utilities are going to hurt like everybody else is hurting, and how they how everyone gets relief and, and what the timing of that looks like, and and to the and to what extent we make um, companies whole that that suffers it's just close to the question the IRC is going to have to figure out. There's a balance there inside of inside of state government. And Delaney, uh, so far the governor has been asked a couple times about this this filing by the utility companies, and he said this is the role of the IURC. At this stage of the process, is that the right answer? Like, don't we need this body to take care of the issue it is tasked with with addressing? Yeah, I th- I think so. I mean, this request is, is totally audacious. It's the only word I'd use to describe it. You've got people home who can't pay their rent or their mortgage and are worried about getting enough food on the table and are using more utilities themselves and worried about being disconnected. And the utility says, oh, we're not making money off the employer who laid you off, so therefore you have to pay more? I mean, try selling that to the public. Everybody's hurting. Mike's right about that. But this is not the time to put an added burden on on the individuals, many of whom are unemployed at the moment. All right, well... More than a dozen school districts in Indiana are asking voters to approve funding for construction projects, general operating costs, or both during next week's Indiana primary. Now, Indiana Public Broadcasting's Jeannie Lindsay explains it's the largest round of referendum proposals seen at one time since 2010. A referendum allows schools to collect property tax funding above the amounts capped by the state. Schools are asking voters to approve a total of 18 referendum questions. That includes South Bend and Hanover Community Schools. Denny Kosterson with the Indiana Association of School Business Officials says the pandemic has made getting information to voters more challenging than usual. All this planning was done well before anyone had even heard of COVID-19. New Albany Floyd County schools are seeking approval for the state's second ever safety referendum. Fort Wayne Community Schools is the only district seeking support for just construction funding. So there's the question about now how worried should these school districts be? If we have John Schwannis back on the line, I'll direct the question first to him. John, how worried should these school districts be? I think they should be worried. And I should also point out, on the as for the previous question, Clearly, I'm using the utilities because that's the only way I can explain the air conditioning running so much that I'm freezing every time I show up on screen. Uh, We'll chalk it up to that. 
Uh, yes, they should be worried, uh, even though this, uh, and it's for the very reasons that have been discussed throughout this program, the uncertainty uh, and the challenges surrounding COVID-19. People don't know how they're going to pay uh, their mortgage payments and their rent and, and buy food for their families. Uh, so the prospect of seeing increased tax burden, e even for the most worthwhile of causes, is going to give some people pause. Now, clearly, this is not uh, anything that it was, uh, it's just bad fortune on the part of, of the school districts, as, uh, as was noted by uh, Denny. Uh, these plans were in place long before anybody probably even heard, knew the name, the phrase COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, but I think they may be bear the brunt of it. The only exception uh, may be uh, in New Albany, where it's the second use of the so-called, you know, school uh, safety, security, yeah, uh, right. safe school safety uh, measure. I think there may, because of, I don't know, human instinct and the sad headlines we've seen over in recent years, when a school district says, I, I need this money for to keep your children safe um, uh, from from those who would do harm to them, that might uh, carry a little more weight than others just saying we need more, a new building, a new roof, a new gym, whatever the case might be. Mike O'Brien, if you're advising these school districts, what's the best pitch to voters right now? Well, clearly they, they had a need before this and they're going to have a greater need after this, um, I think is probably the, the, the best way to Best way to put it to voters, it's a hard sell. Um, I mean, I, I sympathize with these school districts that already saw a need on operations or capital, and and um, and now they're going to have a. We don't know what that is yet, um, based on federal and state stimulus uh, relief for, for school districts. But the need's not going to be less than it was than it was before uh, in these communities. And Delaney, part of the trick here, and Delaney, isn't part of the trick here too that even for school districts who do get these referendums approved. These are rates that are based on property tax values, which might be about to take a even steep decline, right? So even if they get the, the referendum approved, it might not be worth as much money as they thought it was going to. It, it might not, but property values don't seem to be hitting lows. Houses are selling and all. So I, I, don't, I don't know whether the property tax, uh, whether the property base will go down. There's no question the schools need this money. I mean, the state is only now or only now at, at the level of funding for public education it was in 2008. So they need the money. Frankly, I think if I were the school district running this, what I would say is, A, we need the money for these reasons, but we're going to ask that it not take effect for another year hmm. beyond when it would start. And I think that would be a very good selling point for people who recognize the fact that public education is underfunded but may not have the ability to add to that coffer right now. All right. Well, speaking of Election Day, Tuesday is finally Election Day for Indiana's 2020 hmm. primary. There are a couple high-profile congressional races in Indiana this time. The first district Democratic primary, where more than a dozen candidates on the Democratic side hope to succeed longtime Congressman Pete Visklosky. And in the fifth congressional race, there are more than a dozen Republicans vying for the nomination after incumbent Susan Brooks announced her retirement. So I'm going to go around the horn. I'll start with Ann. Uh, what are your predictions in the first and the fifth Democratic and Republican races? Well, in the first, I think that it's bunched up. Uh, and I don't, frankly don't think it matters who gets the Republican nomination in the first. So I, I'm not willing to predict who's going to get it uh, on the Democratic side. In the fifth, I've been enjoying watching the Republicans <laughs> eat each other. I mean, who can out-Trump Trump? It's really amazing how far to the right they've gone to try to push the pistol-packing uh, mama that's in the state Senate now. Uh, but 
the question is, when you when you go into the general election, can she possibly get a coalition together with the ridiculous right-wing agenda that she has? In terms of the Democrats, I think it's going to be Christina Hale. Yeah. The, Christina Hale seems like the safest bet of any of these races we're talking about. Mike O'Brien, uh, the first and the fifth, who you got? Sounds like McDermott, I mean, McDermott just, uh, Mayor Tom McDermott from Hammond, it seems like he's just the metrics are favoring him on money and um you know, the effort he's, uh, he's put in. I think in the fifth, the Victoria Sparks is everywhere. Um, you know, and from the people that I talk to up there, they, they seem to think she's got uh, got the edge there. But, you know, and, and fair enough to Ann's point, I mean, who thought you were going to try to out-Trump people in Carmel? <laughs> so yeah. We'll see how yeah. That's, that's certainly yeah. true. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Nikki Kelly, who have you got? Uh, Christina Hale is the only one I'm willing to go out on a limb with here because <laughs> the rest of them, there are so many people, it's so hard. Yeah. John Schwann, well, is care to make true. any predictions on those two? Sure. Sure. We'll go Hale, given, I think. We'll go Sparks. Uh, she has been everywhere. Uh, and whether that serves her well in the general, who knows? But she probably is in, a, in the driver's seat right now in the primary. And then the McDermott, I think Mike's right. Uh, he's gotten there. A lot of endorsements have been coming out in recent weeks. A lot of funding has been attached to it for various candidates. But I think if you look at name ID and you look at uh, uh, who's has a track record of uh, being an office holder of note and uh, popularity in that in that area, McDermott probably uh, has an advantage. All right. Well, the only notes I'll add to this is uh, it does feel like Sparts is certainly, uh, in terms of exposure, the, the top name to consider up in the fifth. But Beth Henderson has a real shot, I think. Uh, Micah Beckwith can always be a dark horse uh, up there. Um, and in the first district, Frank Mervan Jr. was actually uh, endorsed by Pete Visklosky, the person he's hoping to yeah. replace. Cause, so that could factor into this. Uh, and I want to say that for analysis, I asked local reporters Lindsay Erdoti and Dan Cardin for advice on those races. And that, the, a lot of what I'm telling you I heard from them. But, of course... We don't know how any of this will work out because this is unlike any election we have ever seen in our lives. And that Absolutely. is Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash IWIR. Or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Stay safe, stay healthy, please vote, and join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.